Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. In part one of this two-part podcast series with Drs. Aaron Ciel and Matt DeStefano, we explored general principles of hand injuries, tips and tricks for an efficient physical exam assessment, assessing the compartments, analgesic options, splinting, and a lot more. In this second part of the podcast, I'd like to run through some common and some not-so-common injuries some that are easy to diagnose, but we sometimes fall down in managing them appropriately, and then some that are more difficult to diagnose and we sometimes miss them altogether. So the one that's easy to diagnose where there are management pitfalls to avoid are fingertip injuries. And when I say fingertip injuries, I mean skin avulsions, amputations, nail bed injuries, and tuft fractures. So let's start with fingertip amputations. We touched on this a little bit in part one, but I want to kind of do a bit of a deeper dive here. Dr. DeStefano, how do you classify fingertip amputations and why is the classification important for making management decisions? There's a couple different descriptors, Anton, about classifying these things, but basically it's zone one, two, three of the fingertip, and it's from the very tip of the finger to the DIP joint. And quite simply, if it just involves soft tissue, some amount of the fingertip has been amputated, but you don't see exposed bone, that's zone one. If you get into the distal phalanx, that's zone two. And if you get near the base of the distal phalanx or violating the joint capsule of the DIP, that's zone three. Now, the importance of knowing that is that it basically tells you what you can handle in the eMERGE and what should go to the operating room. Zone one and zone two injuries can be handled in the emergency department. Zone three injuries really should go to the OR or at least to uh, ambulatory care clinic where they can be managed by somebody with experience. All right, so that's how to classify fingertip injuries, amputations in particular. Any tips on how to manage them and where we might go astray? I think always I go back to what we discussed in our first episode, and, and that was to get a sense of vocation and recreation. So understand the patient attached to this problem, because that's going to define to some degree what you're going to do with these injuries and helps you set expectations and do some patient education. Whether you have a zone one or two or three fingertip amputation, it's a game of months, not weeks, for these things to heal and for people to regain function. And I would share with our listeners that in particular for sensation, that sensation could take 12 to 18 months to come back completely for the fingertip. So I think that's part of our role in the eMERGE is educating the patient about what's going to happen down the road. For zone one injuries where you've just amputated soft tissue, my advice in general would be to just leave those alone. Just bundle them up in a good dressing Lots of polysporin, something non-adhesive like adaptic or bactograss that we would use here in North America, bulky dressing, and let the thing declare itself. You know, in our first session together, we talked about blood supply to the hand and that the hand can heal so well. I like to think of it as uh, the finger in particular as our lizard tail. 
You can chop the end of the tail off, it'll regrow. You can chop the tip of the finger off a zone one injury, and in most cases, it'll regrow. They'll heal by secondary intention. So the best thing to do with a zone one injury is just put your hands in your pockets. Don't do anything. Clean it. If there's foreign material, debride it. If something looks obviously devitalized, get rid of that. Otherwise, put a good dressing on it and arrange follow-up within the first week. So that's great. I love that. That's easy. Zone one injuries, you essentially put your hands in your pockets and don't do much of anything except make sure it's clean and put a good dressing on it. What about zone two injuries? Again, zone two injuries are the ones that involve the tuft. So you're involving the bone there, but it hasn't quite encroached on the DIP yet, which is zone three. Sure. So the zone two injuries, you've gotten into bone, the distal part of the distal phalanx. And the good news is you've preserved some really critical structures. The insertion of FDP, the insertion of the extensor tendon, the germinal matrix and the nail fold. So all that critical and complicated stuff is preserved. And so now your job is simply to say, how can I preserve and optimize the length and function and sensation of this finger? And that means being a minimalist with how much tissue you remove. Now, the next part of this depends on your level of comfort and your equipment. But most emergency departments will have a set of rangeurs or the smaller cousin of the rangeur, a Ruskin. And you'll need one of these with most zone two injuries because you need to get rid of a little bit of bone, one, two, three millimeters of the distal phalanx. That has to be lower than the surrounding soft tissue. So if you're a carpenter, the bone has to be countersunk a little bit. If you leave the bone proud of the soft tissue or even at the same level, it's unlikely that you're going to get secondary intention healing distal to that exposed bone. So you need to shorten the phalanx by one, two, three millimeters, just so it's under the level of the surrounding soft tissue. And once you've done that and cleaned it and debrided any foreign material or devitalized tissue, then we go back to the same thing we did with the zone one injury put a non-adherent dressing on it, put a bulky dressing on it, send the patient home with appropriate pain medication and arrange for them to be followed up within a week. Great. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. And it does expose, uh, pun kind of intended, patient to osteomyelitis if they don't have soft tissue closure over top of the bone. So obviously can't have exposed bone because of the risk of developing osteomyelitis in the finger. One of the pitfalls I've read about with these injuries is trying to close the skin and closing it too tightly. Any, any comments about suturing these zone two injuries? For sure. And that, that's where I'm going to default to being a minimalist, Anton, and that if you put too many sutures in these fingertips that are already traumatized, you're adding a second trauma to it. And in particular, you're causing an ischemic injury, the tension on the tissues from your sutures. So again, I would back off to being a minimalist. I'd ranger the bone to be countersunk lower than the soft tissue envelope and then put a good sterile dressing on it, have them seen and follow up. If you're concerned in terms of the mechanism, the amount of contamination, the patient attached to the disease, their comorbidities, put the patient on empiric antibiotics and then have them seen back. One of the reasons not to do aggressive stuff to the soft tissue envelope during the acute management is because you don't know what's viable or not. So a little bit of patience allows the soft tissue envelope to declare itself as being viable. Once it does so, depending on the morphology of the injury, then you can do something to definitively cover it. A graft, an advancement flap, 
or maybe just let it heal by secondary intention. But these are decisions that can be made in five to seven days. Okay. So generally speaking, you're not putting any sutures into these zone two injuries? I try not to unless there's a flap that looks like I can get reasonable closure and coverage without tension. That's key. Now, the other thing that's usually involved with these zone two injuries, any of these fingertip injuries, is the volar pad of the finger, which of course is very important because that's where we do most of our touching and feeling. And without the volar pad, we've really lost a lot of function of our finger. Any comments about implications of the degree of involvement of the volar pad and how to manage fingertip injuries that involve the volar pad differently than ones that don't involve the volar pad? Yeah, really good question. And clinically, this is probably the most important discriminator of where this injury is going to go in terms of management, whether it's zone two or indeed zone three. If the obliquity of the laceration, the morphology of the laceration is such that it takes a good chunk of the volar pad away, you're not going to have a very functional fingertip. So remember, we talked about length, sensation, durability, and range of motion. If the volar pad's been largely removed, you've lost that key part of sensation of the fingertip, and ultimately the treatment for that injury is likely going to be shortening, and that may involve shortening to the DIP. That's a decision probably best made by a hand surgeon, but as an eMERGE doc, you should know that's probably where this case is going. That's very different than a zone 2 or indeed zone 3 injury, where the morphology of the amputation is transverse or the obliquity takes away more of the fingernail or the nail bed, but leaves the volar pad. You sound very smart when you say the word obliquity. I don't think I've ever said that word before. That's an excellent word. It's not as good a word as rangerizing. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to sound fancy, there's two words now that you can say, obliquity and rangerizing. I want to move on to dressings. We've mentioned this a little bit already, but one of the common pitfalls is to apply a dry dressing to an open wound and then inevitably in follow-up, it's impossible to get it off without injuring more tissue. So you've certainly done the patient a disservice by putting on a dressing that has difficulty removing it. Any tips on what dressings to apply to an open wound in general? You know, Matt's alluded to this, but the key is putting something on that's going to be easier to remove by actually being very sort of generous with things like whatever your antibiotic ointment is. And the antibiotic ointment, part of it, like a small part of it is actually the antibiotic part of it. A big part is it's just ointment and it doesn't actually dry up and it's easier. And if anybody wants to hear stories of, of how these cases that we immobilize and we dress in the emergency department, how they end up, just walk to the fracture clinic, walk to a plastic clinic one day and just ask them, hey, what happens to our dressings when we bring when we send them back? Or if you refer them out to a center, just ask them for advice and they'll, they'll give you a feedback on what's happening. I mean, I remember one of our plastic surgeons 25 years ago giving us rounds on how it's really important to put dressings on that don't stick down to their finger because sometimes they have to like, literally soak them in water in the fracture clinic and follow up for 30 minutes or 45 minutes just to peel them off. So being very copious in terms of the amount of ointment that you put over top of it, and then using even they have impregnated gauze of some sort that's also uh, non-adherent. You can go wet to dry dressings, a bulky dressing, not really tight. All of these things are important. There are these tube gauze dressings that you can put uh, over a finger, but if we put them on too tightly, it really does help contribute to drying out the finger. 
So that that's one thing I think that will help. And another thing that also is one thing to consider is if you're putting stitches, especially in children, but even in adults and fingertips, don't be afraid to use like absorbable sutures. It's so uncomfortable for children in follow-up to have to take out sutures that are placed in fingertips. It really is an issue. And, and we don't actually see them on the other side of it when we work in the emergency department. But absorbable sutures are another thing I'll tell you that uh, in the fingertips, even in adults, I'm starting to use now. And the follow-up and the plastic surgeon says they're very appreciative of it. All right. Two great pearls there. One is copious amounts of petroleum jelly or ointment, whatever ointment you're going to use, plus a non-adherent dressing, not just dry gauze. And if you're going to use tube gauze to do it not too tightly, because that will dry it out as well. And then finally, to consider using absorbable sutures. That'll make our colleagues' life easier and follow up. I want to talk specifically about nail bed lacerations when it comes to fingertip injuries. For the patient who has a laceration of their nail, how do you know if there's a nail bed laceration underneath that requires repair in the emergency department? I imagine there's some people who've lacerated a nail and they just have a little abrasion of their nail bed and you don't really need to do anything. And then there's others who have a deep laceration that goes right through the nail bed that you need to repair somehow. We'll get on to exactly how to repair those later. But first is, how do you know if there is a nail bed laceration that requires repair? Well, Anton, I think two things, both of which are, are simple for the working eMERGE doc. One is if there's a subungual hematoma, there's a nail bed laceration, period. And then two is if there's comminution or displacement of the distal phalanx, there's a nail bed laceration. So in those two cases, you can make the determination, you know the diagnosis. And the lateral film on the x-ray is really the key one to look at because if there's a significant malalignment step off of the dorsal surface of the distal phalanx, then you're going to have to, number one, reduce that fracture, and number two, likely repair the nail bed. So I think those cues can help you make decisions. Having said that, if the subungual hematoma is small, let's say less than 50% of the nail, and the lateral view, the distal phalanx is well aligned, I would just refine that nail. I would not pull the nail off and repair the nail bed. But if the whole nail is completely covered with subungual hematoma and the lateral x-ray shows malalignment of the distal phalanx, it's translated, angulated, smashed, I would pull that nail off and I would reduce the bone and I would repair the nail bed. All right. I want to highlight a couple of things that you said there. I mean, I can't remember the last time I reduced a tuft fracture. I mean, I kind of put tuft fractures in the category of just totally benign. So can you just review for us again, which tuft fractures require reduction in the emergency department? Absolutely. So tuft fractures come in two flavors, comminuted and generally well aligned. So they're near anatomic. You're not going to be able to improve the position. And the soft tissue envelope is going to hold it and it will heal. But the other tuft fracture that you will see is one that has suffered a guillotine mechanism. So that fingertip's been caught in something, crushed in a car door is a classic example. And if it doesn't comminute the bone, it'll often create just a fracture line. And the distal segment of the distal phalanx will be translated relative to the proximal segment. And you can imagine that'll create a step off. And so the support surface for the nail bed is no longer in a straight line. And that's one that you need to reduce. And that can be done just with a digital block and then just manipulate the fingertip. You'll feel when it clicks back in and you can see 
laterally, clinically, the profile of the finger is improved, and then send them for an x-ray. Look at the lateral view again. If you can get it within one to two millimeters, that's great. Put a finger splint on it. If you can't, that's a fingertip that probably will benefit from being pinned. Matt's talking about sort of the mechanism. Sometimes when it gets caught in the door, it levers and it pops out the nail on the proximal side. So if you see those where the proximal aspect of the nail has popped out, what's the point of maximal deformation for that finger? That nail actually was much worse than it was and then came back. Sometimes it comes back to a reasonable position, sometimes it doesn't. So when you see that proximal nail popped out, you really need to look on the lateral for what the position's like. One other little caveat to keep in mind, we're talking here about adults. In children, if you ever see this with a child with an open growth plate, there's something called a Seymour fracture, S-E-Y-M-O-U-R. And essentially, it's typically a Salter 2, it might be a Salter 1, it's a displaced fracture of the distal phalanx. They pop out the nail, but this is at risk of all kinds of complications. They can have cosmetic problems with the nail. They can have osteomyelitis. They can have growth arrest. It is a way more significant issue in a child with open growth plates than it is in an adult. And it's a big issue in adults too. But just be aware of this in children. It's called a Seymour fracture. Put it on your little list of things to be worried about. It can happen in fingers. It can also happen in toes. Aaron also brings up a great point about fingernail avulsions. Number one, it can give you a hint about the degree of deformity transiently of the distal phalanx, but practically speaking, it means you've lost nature's splint. So for a distal phalanx fracture, an intact nail that's under the nail fold has not been avulsed is a splint. Once that nail comes out, you've lost the splinting of the fingertip And so not only you need to reduce the fracture, but you need to reduce the nail and then sew the nail back in so it gets its splint function back. Its splint function is an important one. The other thing as well is actually at the germinal matrix of the nail, if there isn't anything natively in there, you can actually get little adhesions or synechiae and you can have, again, cosmetic defects in your nail for the life. So putting the nail back in is not for that nail to stay putting that nail back in serves as a splint. It also keeps the germinal matrix open, allows the new native nail to grow out. It needs to stay there for 10 or 14 days, just a couple of millimeters of the new nail to come out. And when it grows out, then you won't have these adhesions in the nail that might be for life. So uh, it's really protecting that germinal matrix and letting the new nail grow out properly. I want to clarify when to use the nail and when not to use the nail, when to remove the nail. You know, if you have a complex nail bed laceration, some people will remove the nail completely, repair it, and then splint it. Some people leave the nail in place and just suture through the nail and sort of guessing where the nail bed laceration is. How do you make that decision of whether to remove the nail or not remove the nail? So let's go back to how big is a subungual hematoma? What's the alignment on the lateral x-ray? Is there a big step off? And is the nail intact and reduced under the nail fold? Or is it partially avulsed or completely avulsed already? So if I have a big subungual hematoma and the nail is partially avulsed and the alignment is bad on the lateral film, that nail's coming off. And I'll reduce the fracture, I'll repair the nail bed, and then I'll re-implant that nail. But the opposite, Anton, if there's a small subungual hematoma, if the lateral x-ray alignment is good, and if the nail is largely reduced, I'm going to leave that alone because I can't improve the situation by being aggressive. And I think whether surgery is small or surgery is big, the question always to ask is, 
can the doing of the surgery improve the injury? Taking the nail off also, you know, sometimes you'll find that the proximal end is popped out. The distal end is all attached. This is again where a really good block is helpful. You need to take a small little snap very gently, and you've got to tease from distal to proximal to open this up. This is done sort of bluntly, but it's done gradually. It's pretty uncomfortable for patients, but to separate that nail off, if you have a nail that's intact, then that's what you're going to want to use to put back in. If you don't have a nail that's intact proximally, you need to recreate a nail. And usually we just use sort of the, the thin metal of a suture packet to create the shape of a nail that can then go in and keep the matrix open. And this is where I'm going to declare myself. My bias is a minimalist. And partly that is because we don't have good instruments in the emergency department. When I see people removing nails by jamming the end of scissors or snaps under the nail, they can really damage the nail bed and do further injury. So I think if you're going to do this work in your emergency department, it's a good idea to make sure you have a Howarth available or a Freer. Those are the two tools that should be used to remove the nail by minimizing the trauma to the nail bed. All right. Who knew there was so much to know about nail beds? And <laughs> it's exciting territory, Anton. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to take a moment and thank all the folks who came out to the virtual EM Cases Summit February 2nd to 4th. There was amazing engagement with excellent questions asked to our speakers. It really was a great opportunity for the worldwide EM community to gather. So thank you. And also thanks to the incredible speakers one talk after another was absolutely mind-blowing in their delivery and their content. I personally learned a ton of new stuff to inform my EM practice. We had more than 500 people register for the live event, which was really nice to see. So again, thank you. And if you missed it, no worries. For a limited time, you can get access to all the main stage talks through emcasesummit.com. That's emcasesummit, one word, .com. Just click on the button for video streaming package and you'll have access to all the talks. All right, back to specific hand injuries. I want to move on to mallet fingers and jersey fingers. So we're moving now from the fingertip to the DIP joint. And one of the most common injuries that we see at the DIP joint is a mallet finger. And that's the one, just to remind listeners, where the tip of the finger points volarly or palmarly and the patient can't extend their DIP. Dr. Ciel, what are your, let's say, top two or three pearls or pitfalls when it comes to the management of mallet fingers? One is, just, again, compared to the opposite side, just to see what normal is like. It's a pretty fairly obvious clinical diagnosis when you see that the patient isn't able to extend their DIP and it has this extension lag where it can't go up. You should be able to passively put that up into extension, but you'd be able to tell this clinically that they have a mallet finger. Mallet finger essentially is the insertion of the extensor tendon is disrupted. Sometimes it takes a piece of bone with it. It's a bony mallet and sometimes it's purely soft tissue. Everyone's going to take an x-ray. You could predict whether you think it's bony or not by just looking at the patient. So bone is certainly more painful than having a tendinous injury. So if, you, if they're way more painful when you palpate it, more likely bony. Bone has better blood supply, and it's going to bruise more than a tendinous injury. So these are ways that you can predict the x-ray. Small little things, you're going to take an x-ray anyways. 
which cases are surgical. So all of them you're going to put into extension. All of them you're going to have immobilized. The things to watch out for, if it's a bony fragment and it's more than 25 or 33% of the joint surface, that's more problematic. You've got to be more worried about that. Then sometimes plastics will put a little K-wire through it to hold it in place. The other one, and it goes to Matt's previous point about subluxation about you look on the lateral film, and if you ever notice that distal phalanx is actually dropped down. One of our colleagues who who teaches a course with us is out in Whistler, Dr. Bruce Moore. He talks about something called the V sign. And what he looks at is the base of the distal phalanx relative to the distal aspect of the middle phalanx. And if you can put a little V into that joint, that's a concern that maybe this distal phalanx is actually subluxed volarly. And if that distal phalanx with either a tendinous injury or a bony injury, if you see it sublux down, that would be a concern that, you know, in order to maintain function, like Matt was saying, that'll need to be treated more aggressively as well. So look for the surgical cases, a big bony fragment, or if there's any subluxation of the distal phalanx. Yeah, sometimes I see physicians just not getting an x-ray on a mallet finger because they're like, oh, it's just a mallet finger. I'll just splint it and send them on. So I guess one of the first pitfalls is failing to get an x-ray. I would offer two words, Dunning and Kruger. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing about a mallet finger, and I I hear this from surgeons in follow-up, is that the patient wore their splint for a week and took it off, and now they need to go to surgery. So what do you counsel patients in terms of their splint? That's a great point. So it's really generally about six weeks and it needs to be held in extension, the DIP. There are sort of off-the-shelf splints that can be fitted by size. There are also sort of nicer splints that may be available. Depending on where you are, you can even fabricate, you know, a little aluminum-backed foam to isolate. So we want a just the joint involved, the DIP, to be held in extension. A few degrees of extension is ideal. And patients need to be told not to take this off. The analogy, it's like gluing two pieces of wood together. If you glue two pieces of wood together, after five minutes, you separate the piece and go, is it glued or not? Guess what? You're starting all over again when you put the two pieces together. And if somebody has their DIP, their mallet finger, and after three weeks, they let it drop into flexion a little bit, and they go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And they pop it back up. Time is starting at zero again for the six weeks. Bone has better blood supply than tendon. That's why it bruises more. It tends to heal a little faster. Some people might say it's maybe eight weeks for a purely tendinous ones and about six weeks for bony. But then they will transition from that to a night splint and they still need to be watched. Some patients still get a little bit of an extension lag afterwards, but it strictly is six weeks of strict extension. All right, six weeks of 24-7 extension and then another six weeks of just wearing the splint at night. So that's all about mallet fingers. What about jersey fingers? I mean, I always think of them as kind of the opposite, but uh, what are some of the key things to understand about jersey fingers and some of the pitfalls with managing those? Well, we see them less often, which is a pitfall right there, right? Because anything that's relatively uncommon, it's a setup for us to miss it. So I think most working docs have seen tons of mallet fingers, but jersey fingers may be something that comes along once every five years, depending on where you're working and how much you work. So it comes back to our basic hand exam. You're going to look at Cascade first as a great screen, and you'll notice that the affected finger with the jersey finger is relatively more straight. And then you're going to isolate and check for FDP. To do that, you don't want FDS to work. So you're going to hold the PIP and the middle phalanx down and just ask them to bend the finger at the DIP. They won't be able to do it. 
Now, why am I saying the fourth finger, the ring fingers, the most common jersey finger? Well, if you're listening and you're not driving, you can do this. Just loosely make a fist. And as you're doing so, moving your fingers from the rest position, extension, and then slowly make a fist, you'll see that your ring finger, the fourth finger, actually becomes the most prominent. If you straighten your fingers, you'll see that the ring finger is shorter than the long finger. But as you make a fist slowly, you'll see the ring finger will become the same length, if not longer, than your long finger. It's like magic. It's like magic, Anton. So then your fourth finger in the fist becomes the most prominent, and it's exposed to forces when you're grabbing. It's not strong enough to deal with them, and that's why FDP tends to fail in the ring finger. And, you know, jersey finger was named after grabbing people's jerseys in rugby or football or in a bar. (laughs) And that person doesn't want to be grabbed, and they're trying to run away from you, and your ring finger takes it for the team. That's gold, man. That's awesome. That was an excellent explanation of why we get jersey finger injuries, what they are. And then in terms of managing them, I'm assuming it's similar to the mallet finger. They're immobilized for several weeks. Good follow-up. Any tips or tricks there in terms of immobilizing and treatment of jersey fingers? Well, this is actually where these injuries diverge from the mallet finger. Yes, we're going to immobilize them initially, And some people would argue immobilizing with a DIP and a little bit of flexion, Anton, because it allows the end of the FDP stumps to touch each other. But practically speaking, this is probably of no consequence unless you're in a place where there's no surgical services, period. You should immobilize them in a position of function or the safe position, and then they should see a hand surgeon because almost all jersey fingers are going to be surgically managed. Okay. So that's key. So mallet fingers generally are not surgically managed unless there's a fracture associated with them that is interfering with the DIP function, whereas jersey fingers are usually surgically managed. So is it fair to say they should be seeing a surgeon within about a week or so? Yeah. One to two weeks is a fine interval for these. Great. So, so far we've done fingertips, we've done DIPs. Let's move a bit more approximately to PIPs. And we'll just quickly go through this. We've all seen PIP dislocations. We've seen fractures around the PIPs. If there were one or two key take-home pearls for PIP injuries, what would they be? Dislocations of the hand are reasonably common as sort of small joint dislocations. Uh, The most common dislocation is the PIP joint and dorsal PIP dislocations where the middle phalanx is dorsal relative to the proximal anatomy, which is the proximal phalanx. So dorsal PIPs are probably 80%, super common. So that's great. Bread and butter. If it's somebody who's in their mid-20s, it's in sport, they probably have a dislocation. If it's a child, they're more likely to have a fracture. If it's an older patient, fracture. So think about getting x-rays and all that stuff just to prove it, get an x-ray afterwards to prove that it's back in. One thing is once you reduce it, a very important thing is actually to check stability post-reduction. If somebody has a dorsal PIP dislocation that is now reduced, once it's reduced, we want to see if it's stable or not. Will it slip out again? So you can just support the proximal phalanx, dorsal volarly, and try to pop out the middle phalanx. You can support the proximal phalanx radial ulnarly, and then also try to see if you can slide out the joint. And if in both planes it's stable, then it can be buddy taped, and it doesn't need to see a hand specialist. It just needs to be followed. 
But if it feels like it wants to slip out easily, then that patient needs to be more formally immobilized and that person's more likely to need a specialist's opinion. So be careful of that. If there's a little uh, avulsion off the palmar aspect of the proximal phalanx distally, that's often associated with a volar plate injury, which also would increase the likelihood that it'd be more complicated. So just be more careful with those. And Matt probably has a little more to add about volar plates. Sometimes tiny fractures are meaningful. And so these little avulsion fractures off the base of the middle phalanx on the volar side, that's telling you you have a volar plate injury. Part or all of the volar plate has been pulled off during the mechanism. And if you can identify those, those are the ones that need to be followed a little more carefully by a hand surgeon, by a general surgeon, depending on where you are, even a hand therapist, because the splinting and rehab protocols for that injury are different than an uncomplicated PIP dislocation. The only thing that I'd add is dorsal PIP, very common. If you ever see a volar PIP dislocation, which is only about 5% of hand dislocations, that's relatively uncommon. And that's very commonly associated with something called a central slip injury. And the central slip injury, well, if it's missed, the long-term effect of that is something called a boutonniere deformity, where you get hyperflexion of the PIP and hyperextension of the DIP. Essentially, the extensor tendon trifurcates, it splits in three. And then if the central slip, that mid-portion, is disrupted, the lateral bands drop down and they cause this problem. So that central slip injury can occur in isolation with a dorsal PIP injury, just any direct injury to the dorsal aspect of the PIP but it's also very commonly associated with patients who have a volar PIP dislocation. So if you see somebody with a volar PIP dislocation, if you reduce it, even if it's stable, they still should be immobilized and get more closely followed because they likely do have a central slip injury. All right. Important to be able to identify volar plate injuries and central slip injuries because those patients require more close attention from a surgeon, preferably. I have been in the situation once or twice over the last 20 years where there's a PIP dislocation and I just cannot reduce it. Maybe it's because that central slip has come down and it's stuck and the lateral bands have kind of jammed it. If yeah. I find those ones really, really difficult, you know, I do a good digital block and I still can't get it in and I don't want to be pulling too hard on the thing. I feel like I'm going to tear a tendon or something. Your instinct not to pull too hard is actually correct. And in fact, pulling sometimes just tightens the capsule. It's almost this finger trap effect. And if we traction these too much, we actually can impede or decrease our likelihood of being able to reduce them. So this is one where more finesse is involved rather than actual brute strength and pulling. So I used to traction these a lot. And then I learned about this technique where basically it's like a little tip and slip. If you flex the wrist... When you flex the wrist, the flexor tendons have more slack in them. So when the IP joint, the PIP, is dorsally dislocated, the flexor tendon has more tension in it. How do you reduce that tension? You flex the wrist. And by flexing the wrist, that makes it easier to reduce. Then what you can do is you can tip up. You basically stabilize the distal aspect of the proximal phalanx on the dorsal side. So you go, just hold down the proximal phalanx. You tip up on the tip of the finger. And you just slide with your thumb. You just slide along. You hit the base of the middle phalanx and you drag it back out. We'll show you little diagrams that will be in the show notes. But essentially, it's a tip and a slip mechanism to try to reduce this. It's a nice, simple technique where you're not actually pulling on it because pulling can impede the reduction. So wrist flexion is important. And even if you put a good block in, some patients are really anxious, are really nervous, are worried about what you're doing. You need to talk them down. 
relax their hand. Just feel in their forearm. Feel their forearm muscles are relaxed because if they're tight, their long finger flexors and extensors are tight, this will again be counteracting your attempts at reducing it. So relaxation is important, position is important of the wrist, position of the finger, and just gentle tipping and then slipping it in. Anton, you bring up a good point, and that is something stuck in a joint. And we need to think about that for all joint dislocations that are challenging. And we give one attempt, two attempts, and we just can't reduce it. And in particular for the PIP, yes, that can be a complete central slip rupture. And part of that is interposed in the joint. It can be the volar plate. It can be a limb of FDS. And it can be a piece of articular cartilage that's sheared off. So all those are reported. So sometimes with every joint reduction, if you can't get it in and you've optimized your anesthesia and analgesia and your technique is good and you've tried twice, it just needs to go to the operating room. Yeah, it sounds strange to have to have an open reduction for an IP dislocation, the PIP or DIP, but that sometimes happens. And I think, Matt, you know, I learned this from you, but if we're too aggressive, like Matt makes the point, if you're too aggressive in trying to reduce this, you can cause damage to the articular cartilage with the reduction. So we actually prefer gentle reductions, not to cause articular damage, because articular damage down the road will cause arthritis. I always remind myself that the PIP is analogous to the knee and the elbow. What do I mean by that? Well, the PIP is between the DIP and the MCP. It's the middle joint. Elbows between the wrist and the shoulder, knees between the ankle and the hip. And all three of these joints, the PIP, the elbow, and the knee, they're complicated and they don't like being inappropriately immobilized. So if you keep those three things in your head, you'll do well. But be aware of this bias that we have that because it's small, somehow it's minor. It's not. The PIP is a super complicated joint. Absolutely. And now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade system is partially tech and partially a professional service. The web-based tool allows me to let Metricade know exactly how I want to be scheduled. The technology and the expert schedulers work together to produce a schedule that somehow meets the needs of the department, filling every shift while still letting me work more of the shifts I want and fewer of the shifts I don't. When you have a problem, there's an expert scheduler answering the phone who probably fills 2,000 to 4,000 ED shifts a month. They know all the intricacies of ED scheduling. This is not an automated push-button schedule. The technology is a tool to help an expert build a schedule to suit your needs exactly. Go see for yourself at metricade.com slash emcases. Let's move proximally now. We've talked about fingertip injuries. We've talked about DIP problems. We've talked about PIP problems. And I want to get on to metacarpal fractures and fight bites and such. So let's start with this. Most boxer fractures are pretty easy to diagnose, but there are metacarpal fractures that we talked about briefly on our last podcast with Dr. Cial that I just want to revisit briefly here is the metacarpal fractures that are easy to miss. Which metacarpal fractures are easy to miss and where should we be looking on the x-ray and what kind of patients should we be suspecting these easy to miss metacarpal fractures? From a diagnostic point of view, in terms of where we misdiagnose that, oh, that person has a fracture or not, is probably at the base of the metacarpals. So when we examine patients, again, surface anatomy is super important. You know, you can feel the metacarpal neck and you can walk down shaft. You can walk down to the proximal aspect of a metacarpal. You can see where the patient is sore. And then you look carefully at x-rays. But there are certainly a lot of overlapping structures at the base of the metacarpals where it may be missed. 
The thing that gets missed is not so much the fracture, but the complication of the fracture and the recognition of it. So if somebody has a boxer's fracture, it's pretty uncommon to miss it, but what's often missed is rotation attached to a boxer's fracture. If somebody has a metacarpal shaft fracture, the angulation of a metacarpal shaft fracture of what's acceptable is much different than a metacarpal neck. So it's important to appreciate that we need to separate out neck fractures and look for rotation. Shaft fractures are different and proximal metacarpal fractures can easily be missed. Great. So you can think of them in three categories, really, is the proximal fractures where there's a lot of bone overlap that are easy to miss. And that's really a diagnostic challenge. There's the shaft fractures and then there's the neck fractures, which all have a different acceptable degree of angulation. And that was my next question, actually. I always find myself, hmm, should I reduce this? Shouldn't I reduce this? It's a bit angulated, but it doesn't look too bad. Which metacarpal neck fractures and which metacarpal shaft fractures do we need to reduce in the emergency department? Generally, if you see rotation attached to them, and again, how do we look for rotation? It's with the MCP's inflection and PIP's inflection. If we see rotation attached to it, that's not ideal. So you may want to reduce it. You should think about reducing it. And again, you also then will look at the patient attached to it. If it's a 85-year-old patient, demented nursing home, and has a bit of scissoring of their fifth finger, you may not be so inclined to have to reduce it. But you know that spectrum goes also to somebody who's index finger, dominant hand, five degrees rotation. That's certainly important to reduce. So all of these things you need to keep in mind. There are acceptable degrees of angulation for metacarpal neck fractures. Most in North America would accept, you know, for a fifth metacarpal neck, 45 degrees of angulation. And then you cascade down. So it's 45, 30, 20, 10 to get to the second metacarpal neck. Some say 40, 30, 20, 10 for acceptable degrees of angulation. There are European studies that accept 70 degrees of angulation for a fifth metacarpal neck fracture. And I think what really matters is what our specialists who we refer to, what they would do. And if they will accept 70, then I guess we can accept 70. If they would say, no, no, I would have reduced 45 or whatever, then we should probably think about doing it that way. Because if they're going to follow up these cases, at least they were managed the way that they would like them to be managed in follow-up. So I think knowing what our specialists want in these things are important, but being aware of what our absolute indications are certainly helpful in the emergency department to help us do the reductions. The numbers are less accurate for shaft fractures. We generally don't give people actually like numbers of what's acceptable for a shaft. Just to say that shaft is cortical bone, not cancellous. It's more likely to be oblique. It's more likely to slip. It's more likely to be unstable. It's more likely to be surgical. So just be more careful with shaft. I would want shafts to be pretty anatomically aligned, but then they need to be watched more closely because they can be they can slip pretty easily. One easy way to remember if there's a general rule, but again, there is variation depending on who's following up, is for the second, third, fourth, and fifth fingers, it's 10 degrees, 20, 30, 40. Yes. Great. For neck fractures, not for shaft. So now that we've sorted out which metacarpal fractures need to be reduced, do you have any tips on the actual reduction of these fractures? You know, we want to minimize pain. We want to achieve alignment. We want to be efficient. How do we be efficient, achieve alignment, and minimize pain when we have that 23-year-old guy who's just come from the bar with a boxer fracture? Sure. Well, maybe the analgesia is taken care of already by the oral consumption from the bar, Anton. That's possible. <laughs> well, so as you said, there's sort of three diseases here of the metacarpal, right? The distal, the middle, and the proximal. So let's let's tear those apart in terms of what you're going to do, practically speaking. And I think 
the easy thing is to do a proximal block, so to do an ulnar nerve block. You can certainly do a zone or field block, but that puts volume in the area that you're going to try and do work and maybe do some molding with your splinting technique. So maybe consider doing your, your nerve block proximal at the wrist. That's number one for all three levels of the injury. And then number two is your reduction. If you're going to do that, there's as many techniques out there as people have names. The key thing is in your reduction technique of pushing the ice cream back up onto the cone, you need to check for two things. Number one, how stable is it after? Because when you do a reduction of any fracture, you're inherently making it less stable. You're disengaging the ice cream that got pushed down on the cone. So check for stability after. Does it want to fall right off again? Or does it feel and look on x-ray good? And number two, like Aaron was talking about, you're obligated to check for rotation, malrotation. So not every boxer's fracture is going to be malrotated, but some are. So you'll want to check for scissoring after. And then you want to splint in a deep ulnar gutter in a position of safety or function, wrist and extension, MCPs and flexion, IPs and extension. And our preference is certainly plaster because that will maintain, hold a mold much better than fiberglass. So every time you do a reduction, ask yourself, is it unstable? Is it rotated? I need to check these things by feel, by x-ray, by physical exam, range of motion. And then I need to maintain, obtain and maintain, get it straight, keep it straight. And keeping it straight is a well-molded plaster ulnar gutter. So that's for the boxer's fracture. The shaft fracture, the middle third injury, almost universally is going to go to the operating room, but that's not an excuse not to do something. You can still reduce these and improve the position. And again, put them in an ulnar gutter if it's a D4-5 metacarpal fracture. If it's the far less common metacarpal fracture of the second or third metacarpal, you can either treat those in a very deep ulnar gutter or in a radial gutter. But know that those are likely going to go to the operating room. Make sure the injury is closed. Count how many metacarpal fractures there are because remember, like we talked about last time, if you have two or more metacarpal fractures, you should think about a compartment syndrome or the risk of one evolving. And those are particularly for shaft fractures. And why is that? That's because it takes more energy to cause a shaft fracture. So the more shaft fractures you have, the more energy went into the hand. And then last comment about base of metacarpal fractures. For the most part, those fractures are minimally displaced or not displaced at all. They can be comminuted. And the key thing is to check the alignment on the lateral because often they're associated with a dislocation of the metacarpal that's next door. So if the broken metacarpal base, comminuted, oblique, or shortened, if that's going on, it is stressing its next door neighbor. If the broken metacarpal's shorter, it's asking its unbroken next door neighbor to get shorter. And the only way for it to get shorter is to dislocate. And you may only appreciate that on the lateral. So that's really the pitfall in those base of metacarpal fractures. And those tend to be five or four or both, but look for that pattern of fracture dislocation on the lateral. If it's dislocated, you need to reduce it. If it's quote unquote, just a fracture, those go in an ulnar gutter. And I would comment on this, and we've talked about this a couple times in the first podcast, look for these similarities between the hand and the foot, this analogy between the hand and the foot. 
What's a base of metacarpal fracture? It's at the carpal metacarpal joint. Now, we don't call it this in the hand, but we probably should in our heads, in a little voice. That's a Liz Frank injury of the hand. Tarsal metatarsal joint fracture dislocation, Liz Frank injury. Carpal metacarpal joint fracture dislocation in the hand, Liz Frank injury. You should whisper it to yourself. People think you're crazy. That's a great analogy. I love that. Okay, so I'm going to think about base of metacarpal fractures as Liz Frank injuries and pay a bit more attention and look at the next door neighbor there to make sure that it's not out of place. Excellent. I want to talk a little bit about antibiotics. Uh, we know for all open long bone fractures that they all need antibiotics, and that's one of our priorities in management. For hand fractures, my understanding is that because the vascularity is so good and for various other reasons that it's not quite as urgent to get those antibiotics in and that not every single open hand fracture actually needs antibiotics. Can you just review for us the indications for antibiotics for hand fractures? Let's number one, talk about a fracture as a soft tissue injury. Okay. Um, it's very easy for us to get fixated on the broken bone. But in the hand and every other location, think about how much the soft tissue envelope has been violated or devitalized, because that's so important for preventing an infection in the bone. So if you look at the soft tissue envelope and you're worried about its integrity, you're going to be much more likely to give empiric antibiotics. The second thing is, what's the evidence, Anton? And there's not a lot of compelling evidence in the hand for the management of clean open fractures Castillo 1, if you like, with antibiotics. That doesn't mean don't do it. It just means there's not a lot of evidence supporting it for it. Now, it's very different if the soft tissue envelope has been significantly devitalized or the injury involves contamination. There, I think every expert in the world is going to say, give that patient antibiotics, wash them out, update their tetanus. But particularly when we talk about the classic quote-unquote open fracture in the emergency department, and that's a tuft fracture that happens to be open communicating through a laceration in the nail bed, that's really a debatable one for the utility of antibiotics. And I would tell you my personal practice is I don't use antibiotics in that case. And I tend to be a minimalist for other fractures in the hand where the soft tissue envelope is intact and healthy and the open fracture is small, and the patient attached to the disease is well. So there's a lot of modifiers there in my thinking. Even if you're giving antibiotics, that doesn't obviate the need for good cleaning out of the wound and washing it out. That's, that's more important probably than the antibiotics in many cases, is, is proper irrigation of the wound. Absolutely, especially for the farmers and people working in the garden and such. Yeah. We've talked about the second to fifth fingers a lot in the last little while and in the last podcast. I want to talk about the thumb. And I want to talk about two, or you could call it three injuries in particular of the thumb. There's Gamekeeper's Thumb, Rolando, and Bennett. So we'll start with Gamekeeper's Thumb. Why is Gamekeeper's Thumb easy to miss? I think it's easy to miss because of similar reasons why I miss many other orthopedic injuries in the emergency department. It's history, physical, and then the x-ray. So history being, we don't actually take the history to understand that the mechanism that was applied to the thumb where they fell and they had a hyperabduction injury to their thumb. 
second physical exam, we don't actually touch them to know where it's sore, that it's the ulnar aspect. If we don't know anatomy well enough, we can't localize it, that's the pain. And third, if they have a gamekeeper's thumb, some of them have a fracture, some of them don't. The x-ray can actually be normal. We don't see it on x-ray. If they do have a fracture, it can be quite small. And if we haven't localized where their pain is, we actually miss the abnormality on the x-ray. So I think all these three things kind of contribute to why we miss it. Once you start diagnosing these, it becomes much easier to pick up going forward. You pick up the next couple and you'll know to keep looking for it. You'll know where the anatomy is. You know how to test for it. So you mentioned that even without a fracture, you can have a gamekeeper's thumb. To me, the key thing is checking for laxity on physical exam. You know, any thumb injury, I always try and check for laxity in the ulnar collateral ligament. Could you just review for us how to check for the laxity? Because I find myself often, you know, I check the normal side and then I check the good side. I'm going back and forth. I'm like, is there laxity? Isn't there any, any tips about laxity and then how much laxity is acceptable? That's a great point. Like, what is what is normal? And there's a lot of patient-to-patient variability of normal. So a gamekeeper's thumb is an injury to the ulnar collateral ligament of the first MCP, the first metacarpophalangeal joint. Truly, a gamekeeper's thumb is a chronic injury from people who used to actually kill game, and they get a chronic injury to their ligament. It's called, called ski pole thumb or skier's thumb because that's the acute injury, but that's just sort of, you know, semantics of the name and such. In terms of what's normal and how to examine for it, so there are different ways. If the x-ray is normal, uh, this is a ligamentous injury, it's a strain, you can have a grade one, a grade two, a grade three injury of the ligament. A grade one is a stretch, a grade two is a partial tear, and a grade three is a complete tear. A grade one, a grade two, a grade three, they'll all be tender, they'll be sore, they'll be swollen. And exactly as you mentioned, when you examine them, this is now where you can help to separate out a grade one, a grade two, and a grade three. What you need to do is know what normal is. And what you need to do then is to examine the normal side, assuming they haven't previously injured it. The way you examine for it properly is you will localize, you know, you can see on surface anatomy, the distal phalanx, the proximal phalanx of the thumb, and then just proximal to the proximal phalanx is the first metacarpal. What you want to do is you want to isolate, you want to stabilize the first metacarpal, basically in the radial ulnar plane. So it doesn't actually, it can't shift as you're testing the ulnar collateral ligament. And you don't want to be too close to the joint because you actually might be touching the, the ligament, the, the, the origin, and that's a bit sore. So almost like mid-metacarpal is where you're going to be grabbing it radial ulnarly. You then take the thumb, flex it about 20 or 30 degrees. And when you flex 20, 30 degrees, this is how you can now isolate the ligament. When you do it this way, do it on the unaffected thumb first because then you'll see what normal is like for the patient. Females have more ligament laxity than males do, and young people have more ligament laxity than older people do. So if you see a young female, you'll expect there to be a fair bit of play. If you see an older male, you expect it to be fairly stiff. And there's a range in between, but that's why you always compare to normal first. Then what you do is you go to the affected side. So now the patient knows what you're going to do. They're not so afraid. You get them to, to relax their thumb a little bit. You, you stabilize it as we talked at the metacarpal. You grasp at the IP joint and you just stress it to the point to stretch the inside. So you're taking the thumb and you're moving it radially. And that's a way of stressing it. If it's painful, but it opens the same as the opposite side, that's a stretch. That's a grade one. If it's painful but it opens a little bit compared to the opposite side, but has a definite endpoint. that's a grade two. That's a partial tear. And if it's actually not that painful, but really opens quite a bit wider than the opposite side with no definite endpoint, that's a grade three. 
That's a complete tear. And even though a complete tear is the worst, it's often the least painful because the proprioceptive fibers of the ligaments are completely torn. So it actually hurts the least when you test it. And grade threes are often attached to something called a Stenner's lesion. A Stenner's lesion, what does that mean? It means that the two ends of the ligament are basically can't meet each other because there's the aponeurosis that basically is caught in between. And then these patients will have chronic thumb pain and therefore grade threes are typically treated surgically. So one and twos are managed non-operatively, grade threes are treated surgically. Fantastic. That's everything I ever wanted to know about ulnar collateral ligament injuries. So again, the mechanism is usually with some sort of pole or club that they're gripping onto when they fall. They have pain on the ulnar aspect of their thumb. And really the key to distinguish what kind of injury they have is to compare it to the other side and really stabilize that first metacarpal and then test the thumb moving laterally. And that actually brings up the point of we rarely test lateral movement when we're testing any of the fingers. And I've heard one of you say in the past that we should test lateral movement of the fingers routinely for all hand injuries. Well, for sure, if someone's had a PIP dislocation, how do you know that it's stable? You got to check a dorsal volar and radial ulnar. So similarly for this, if you want to isolate the ulnar collateral ligament, you need to stress it. So that's the position in which you need to do it. A couple of extra things is you will be taking an x-ray because sometimes there's an avulsion fracture, depending on the size of the fragment and the position of it in. That also kind of is helpful to decide if it's, again, if it's a big piece, 25%, like a quarter or a third of the joint space, and there's any displacement of the fracture, then surgeons may be more likely to want to treat that surgically. But if it's undisplaced a fracture, or if it's a small fragment, then there probably isn't anything to do surgically. But if it's a complete tear, that's also treated surgically. And then you put them in a thumb spike, a splint, but just extend the splint to the end of the thumb and just take the thumb and put in a little bit of adduction, where you push the thumb towards the rest of the palm. And what that does is it takes the stress off the ligament while it's healing. Ah, that's a key pearl there. So we've talked about gamekeeper's thumb. Then there was Rolando and Bennett. So if you could just remind our listeners what a Rolando and Bennett fracture is and why they're easy to miss. Rolando and Bennett like Ernie and Bert. <laughs> you remember both of them, Anton. They're actually two sides of the same coin. And it's about the nature of the axial load. So these fractures result from the thumb being pushed down onto the trapezium, particularly the metacarpal being rammed down on the trapezium. And the trapezium acts like a splitting axe, and it splits the base of the first metacarpal. So it just depends where the load got taken. Is it really in the long axis? How aligned was the base of the first metacarpal against the trapezium? And a lot of that depends just on the position of the thumb at the point of impact, the point of the mechanism. So if you got lined up nicely, your first metacarpal really collinear with the trapezium and you drove it down centered, you'll get a bicondylar fracture at the base of the first metacarpal. And that's a Rolando fracture. And technically speaking, if you're going to you know, draw a picture of it, it's a Y-type bicondylar fracture. But in the real world, it's often much more comminuted in appearance. So I think a Rolando is actually... Well, number one, it's less common, but number two, it's easier to diagnose or conversely, it's less difficult to miss because it's such an obvious fracture on the x-ray. The pitfall is the Bennett's and the Bennett's is actually more common and a Bennett's is a unicondylar fracture and sometimes that fracture can be very small. So you can knock one big condyle off at the base of the metacarpal 
Or you can have what amounts to a very small sliver of bone, like an avulsion injury. So that's the one to look out for. Now, clinically speaking, you're not going to miss either of these if you just, I don't know, look at the patient. The, <laughs> the base of the thumb swollen. There's often ecchymosis. The patient has pain. And look out for a compartment syndrome in the thinner eminence because these bleed a lot. Okay, so isolated single compartment syndrome in a young, healthy male with good muscle. Look out with these injuries. Okay, number one, broken bone bleeds, but also these tend to be higher energy mechanisms. So what do you do with them? Well, both a Bennett's and a Rolando are surgical cases, but in the eMERGE, we can reduce them. And the reduction is really about position of the thumb. And we like to joke, if you're a certain age, you'll call this the Fonzie position, the great show from the 70s and 80s, happy days. But for those of us that may be a little bit younger, it's a thumbs up position. So Aaron was talking about the versatility of the position of the thumb in a thumb spica splint. For a gamekeeper's thumb or the acute cousin, the skier's thumb, you're actually going to adduct the thumb a little bit, bring it towards the index finger in the spica splint. For a Rolando or Bennett's fracture, you're going to bring the thumb up in extension and mold and position the spica that way. That reduces the base of the first metacarpal and brings it closer in alignment to the trapezium. And to add on to that, a Bennett's is classically, it's a fracture dislocation of the base of the first metacarpal. Usually when you see these fracture dislocations, usually it's a small piece that dislocates and the large piece stays anatomic. In this case, the large piece gets displaced. And that's why it's actually hard to treat without an operation because the tendon attaches to the base of the first metacarpal and it's just pulling and it wants that big fragment to keep pulling off. And if this is a dominant hand, if this is, you know, this is an important joint, even if it's your non-dominant hand of a thumb, and if it's not sitting in, in good position, you can certainly get arthritic changes and dysfunction down the road. So that's why this is tends to be treated surgically, but certainly putting on a good quality splint helps keep things quiet. One of the things in older patients, just why it's a very common place for actually CMC, carpal metacarpal osteoarthritis. And a lot of older patients actually walk around with a subluxed thumb without any fracture attached to it. So you may see this in old people and go, oh, I think they got a, they got a Bennett's, but that might just be OA in an old patient. So just be aware of that, of not jumping to everyone that looks slipped off. There may be this a fracture I can't see, I should CT it. Now, there's a lot of arthritis down there. A lot of old patients walk around with a chronically subluxed CMC joint. Fantastic. So many pearls there. So we've talked about Gamekeeper's Thumb. We've talked about Rolando and Bennett. I want to get deeper into tendon injuries. We touched on this a little bit in our last podcast. Tendon lacerations are commonly missed and not uncommon sources of lawsuits. Dr. DeStefano, how do you suggest we lower our miss rate of hand tendon injuries in general? Anton, I'm glad you asked that question because that's one of the things I think we really want to leave the listener with. If there's big take-home messages from this time we're spending together, for hand wounds, look in all of them. Get in the habit of looking in all lacerations, particularly on the dorsum of the hand. There must be a magnet in the top of the foot, right? There's a reason why if you're working in the kitchen, your bare feet flip-flops and you drop a knife off the counter, it just manages to find the extensor hallucis longus tendon somehow, but it, it always lacerates that, right? And that's just a reminder that the dorsum of the foot and the dorsum of the hand are tiger country for tendon lacerations. Skin, tendon, bone, there's no padding. There's no place for the tendon to hide. 
So any laceration, even if it looks innocuous, you are obligated to look in it. So avoid that at your peril. So I think that's one big take-home message. What can you do to look in a laceration? Number one, don't be afraid to extend the laceration with sharp dissection. If you can't get a good look in there, make it a bigger laceration. It's already cut. Number two, as Aaron alluded to, use light, get a headlamp, have a friend, have someone help you retract with blunt cat's paws or skin hooks, but do your best to have lighting and exposure. And then for the hand, you must look at the tendon through full range of motion, either active or passive, because sometimes the position of the hand at the time of the laceration is different than the rest position in the emergency department. So think of the laceration in the skin as a window down to the tendon, but you need to look at the tendon through its full excursion to see if the tendon injury lines up with the window in the skin. Great. So explore your wounds thoroughly and run them through a full range of motion. Those are the key two principles there. Excellent. I want to talk about flexor versus extensor injuries. You already alluded to the back of the hand being very exposed area where there isn't much padding there and you can get lacerations easily. There's this sort of black box in the middle of the palm of the hand that we were all taught is a very dangerous zone to have tendon lacerations. Could you just review for us that sort of black box in the palm of the hand, why it's the black box, how those are treated differently than flexor tendon injuries in the rest of the hand, and then the extensor tendon injuries? For sure. And I would say, let's make it really simple and say there's only one flexor tendon injury that an eMERGE doc or a generalist should attempt to fix in the emergency department, and it's a very distal one. Let's come back to that at the end. Otherwise, there's really two zones. One is the zone of danger, which is the palm of the hand, and that's the deep space in the hand where the superficial and deep palmar arches live. And obviously that needs to be managed in the operating room where a proper dissection can be done with good exposure and help and light and make sure that you don't cause a vascular injury. Thankfully, a tendon laceration in the deep space of the hand is rare. Think about how you use your hand and how you grasp and where things are most likely to get cut. And it's going to be at the level of the MCPs and more distal. Tiger country, from a standpoint of repairing a flexor tendon from the MCP to the DIP, a little bit of history is helpful. 50 years ago, almost nobody would fix those. And the reason is the flexor tendons go through pulleys. And if you fixed a flexor tendon, almost always you were going to get an adhesion between the flexor tendon and the pulley. And that would cause more problems for the patient than simply not having an FDS or an FDP that worked. So for many, many years, those injuries were left alone. You just had a permanent disability. People have tried historically to interpose fat between the repair and the pulley or to open up the pulley, leave it alone, or do a delayed repair. And now oftentimes interposing silicone rods and other materials to try and reduce the risk of adhesion. That's obviously not something we're doing in the emergency department, but it's something to know about and it helps us to counsel the patient about what comes next. So if you have a flexor tendon laceration at the level of the MCP all the way distal to the DIP, you can splint the hand in the position of comfort, give antibiotics if you think they're appropriate based on the patient attached to the disease and the potential contamination, 
and you can close the skin. I think what we can do to help our colleagues is if you can see the ends of the flexor tendon, by all means, tag it with a suture and leave a long tail. It makes life a lot easier for the operating room. And Anton, certainly our practice has been, if you have a flexor tendon laceration, that should be immobilized from the fingertips to the elbow so that you're not giving an opportunity for the proximal stump of the tendon to be retracted. Now let's finish off with what's the thing we can tackle in the emergency department. If you have a flexor tendon laceration distal to the DIP and you can see both stumps, most hand surgeons will tell you to go ahead and repair it if you can see it. So if the laceration's big enough and you feel comfortable and both stumps are present, go ahead and suture that. Our hand colleagues may leave that alone and follow that patient, or they may take it apart and do a more robust repair, but at least you're giving the patient a chance. And if you're rural and remote, I think you should go ahead and do that. Simply put, the only flexor tendon injuries you think we should repair in the emergency department are distal to the DIP, where you can see the ends, you can put them together. Great. And then on the extensor side? On the extensor side, you know, classically the direction is a generalist, an emergency physician, a family doc can repair an extensor tendon laceration in zones two, three, and four. But I think I would extend that to be wherever you can see both ends of the tendon and there's not a chunk of tissue missing. In other words, you're going to do a low tension repair. If it's there, go ahead and do it. And then the question is just technique and suture. So if we can help the listeners at all, there's really three things from equipment that'll help you do a better job. One is use a taper needle. Don't use a cutting needle when you're doing a tendon repair, particularly an extensor tendon. There's not a lot of meat there already, right? The extensor tendon's like a very thin piece of linguine. It's not like a flexor tendon where you've got more chunky material to work with. Uh, so use a taper you should use a strong suture. And for most of us, that means an absorbable braided suture. Absorbable over the long term, six, seven, eight weeks, something that's going to hold steady for the amount of time it needs the tendon to heal. So taper needle, braided, absorbable suture that's not stretchy, that's not elastic. Because the key thing, Anton, for your tendon repair is apposition and maintaining apposition the two ends of the tendon have to kiss and they have to stay that way. So if you use a suture that absorbs too quickly or a suture that's a little bit stretchy, you may lose apposition of your tendon ends. And then the last part is how you suture it. The only hard and fast rule is you shouldn't do interrupted sutures. You should do something that has a better chance of grasping the tendon. And there are multiple techniques, but for most working eMERGE docs, do a few figure eights. If you want to up your game, look up Kessler technique or modified Kessler, K-E-S-S-L-E-R. And then the last part is after you wash it out, after you close the skin, splint them to detension the repair. So if you have an extensor tendon repair, well, you want to splint them with a fair amount of wrist extension to take the load off your repair. And like we've talked about before, they should be splinted from the fingertip all the way up to the elbow because that immobilizes the whole system. Those are all great tips. One of the things I'd suggest is, especially if you're going to be sending them off to a specialist, take a picture with the patient's phone of what you saw under the skin. 
Because when the patient has it on their phone and they go and see the specialist, they know the repair that was done. They know what the anatomy looked like before you repaired it. They know what you did. Because if the specialist is happy with function, they may not have to actually open anything or do anything. But it actually lets the specialist know what was repaired and what it looked like. The specialist may recognize some other anatomy that may need to have attention. And by just taking a picture of it, it actually gives the specialist an idea of what was done. Fantastic. So we've covered everything from fingertip injuries to DIP injuries to PIP injuries, metacarpal injuries, tendon lacerations of the hand, gamekeeper's thumb, Bennett's Rolando. We don't want to overload the listeners. Perhaps we'll do another hand injuries podcast at some point to cover some of the other important hand injuries. Any other last words of wisdom, tips, tricks when it comes to hand injuries? general philosophical thoughts, specific injuries that people should think about. I'll go back to what we sort of said at the very beginning of the first podcast, which is when you see someone with a hand injury, just have a healthy dose of concern that, you know, this is a yellow flag and let me just see what I can do to get the patients back. So what is the injury? What's the patient attached to the injury? You have to go slow first. Once you get better at these, then you can get back to being quick again, but you need to establish good habits and that just takes a bit of time. Yeah, good points. And I would say, and it's, it's a really a corollary to what you're talking about, biology is destiny with all wounds. And even though the hand has such good blood supply and it's relatively protected that way, be careful. Look at the patient attached to the disease. Think about comorbidities. So elderly person who's a vasculopath, I'll often ask my elderly patients that have a hand injury, have you ever had a heart attack? Have you had a stroke? And they're looking at you wondering why you're asking those questions, right? But really what you're screening for is peripheral vascular disease. So if the hand is protected by blood supply, I want to know that the blood supply is good. Are they a smoker? Are they diabetic? And then all the other stuff we talked about around functional expectations, vocation, recreation. So that big picture view, first of all, is so important when you're dealing with the hands before you drill down to this foundation of you must know the anatomy cold. All very good words of wisdom. Well, thanks so much, gentlemen. You know, when I planned this episode, I thought we'd need a plastic surgeon to join us, but I think it's quite apparent from your incredibly thoughtful answers to my questions that we honed in on some very practical, practice-changing nuggets of knowledge-specific to the emergency physician that in many ways I think was better than, dare I say, if we (laughs) invited a plastic surgeon to join us. So thank you so much, both of you, for your expertise. And Dr. Ciel, I do look forward to seeing you at the EM Cases Summit. Dr. DeStefano, hopefully you'll accept my invitation for a talk at EM Cases Summit 2024. Love to be there. Thank you very much. Thanks for the kind words, Anton. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Anton. Clearly, this was recorded before the EM Cases Summit in early February. As part of the video streaming package of the summit, Dr. Cial gives an amazing talk on wrist fractures, and we also created a professionally shot video of Dr. Cial explaining how best to do a hand exam, which I think really nicely pairs with this podcast. So head over to emcasesummit.com, not emcases, but emcasesummit.com to grab your video streaming package because it will only be available for a limited time. Until next time, take it easy.